So let yourself listen, um, not too carefully. (laughs) Might be something of use and the rest of it, just let it go. It's really a pleasure for me to be back here at Spirit Rock. Um, I took the winter off to work on a a book on Buddhist psychology that I've been writing for the last couple of years. and spent the last two months living in Indonesia, in Bali, um, and actually came back last week and then spent a week in Florida. Um, my wife's mom had a 90th birthday celebration, so mm-hmm. Bali in Florida and back here. Um, they were different, yes. Uh, and it was beautiful to come back to Spirit Rock. When I came back last week before I went, went off to Florida, I got a chance to walk through the um, end of our two-month winter retreat, and it felt quite magic. Um, It was so still in the meditation hall and so deep, and people's um, composure and steadiness, whatever quality, I don't know even quite how to articulate it, but there was a sense of presence and attention just moving through that uh, retreat that was very special. Um, and I understand that you've all become monsoon dwellers here <laughs> for the last months. Um, what I did in Bali was actually have a, a writer's retreat um, with a, several other friends, with Wes Nisker. He was working on new book on crazy wisdom and other folks. And um, we would write in the morning and then read our stuff to one another, kind of like a writer's group, and then go out in the afternoons or evenings to walk in the rice fields or go to different temples and ceremonies and so forth. And it's a, it's a splendid way to, to, to work, to have that kind of community. Um, and then my brothers, I have three brothers, and they all came to visit for a couple of weeks. Um, and we haven't been together without our kids and families. It's just the, the four boys, I don't know, since before college, so we also had a very, it was a very good time. Um, and I'd lived in Bali before. My family had, and I had gone on sabbatical a number of times from when my daughter was quite young. And it's always refreshing to return to a culture like that, a traditional culture, um, but in particular a culture where the sacred and the spiritual is woven so deeply into every day's activities all around you. And there's such a commitment in the Balinese culture to art. And there's painting and music and dance and theater and uh, sculpture, and, and, and it's all over. And one of, our, one of the um, drivers I had one day when we were going to a different village place, we were talking about it, he said, well, really, our religion is beauty. <laughs> That's our... And um, the Balinese are also very good at collaborating. So I saw some interesting kind of productions. For example, I saw a theater piece that was done um, that was a version of Hamlet with a Balinese gamelan orchestra, (laughs) a Japanese no player, an Italian director, and some Danish actor playing Hamlet. (laughs) And all these people in Balinese dance costumes kind of dancing around as the court of Hamlet. And it was pretty wild. And they liked it. They, the Balinese that I talked to said, oh, yeah, we, you know, we love theater. Come and, um, and what, what's true 
is that um, in that culture, um, there aren't artists, as most many of you may have heard about Bali. They don't have a word for artist because everybody does it. It's just part of what you do. Like you're not a breather, right? (laughs) (laughs) When Martin Luther King said, if a man sweeps streets for a living, he should sweep like Michelangelo painted and Beethoven composed and Shakespeare wrote poetry and so forth. There's something about the Balinese culture where that spirit is brought to what is done. And early on in our our writer's retreat when we were there, it was Saraswati Day. Bali is a Hindu culture. And um, so to celebrate Saraswati, who's also the goddess of literature, creativity, writing, plays, all of these things, we went to the um, palace of Chokordarai, who's one of the princes there, um, who's also a great healer, an old man, he's in his 70s, and he's beautiful, he kind of looks like Gandhi or Ramana Maharshi, and um, at his palace, and I'd been seen him before in the past, um, there were all the people from around the villages there who had gathered to celebrate Saraswati and bring offerings and so forth. And at, uh, in the course of that day and afternoon, there, were, there was a dance performance uh, from the Ramayana of these warrior dances, uh, basically the battle between good and evil. There were all these young children dressed up in silk and doing amazing um, dances as offerings to the goddess Saraswati. There was a recitation theatrical of the Ramayana Mahabharata, um, kind of the great Hindu epic. In one place there was a shadow puppet performance going on with a great cast of characters in another place. Um, and priests in the most amazing costumes of white and jewels and gold and blessing everybody. And, and, and various kinds of gamelan music going on. And the interesting thing is it was all going on at the same time. Um, and it wasn't like people were there in the audience to watch it. Sometimes there were people watching it and sometimes not. But it actually wasn't a performance, and it wasn't for people to watch, although people could watch the dances or the shadow. It was an offering. It was for Saraswati as a way of offering the spirit of creativity to the goddess who represents the creativity in all life. Um, and so it didn't matter that there was music going one direction here and somebody singing a different song over here and people dancing to a different melody over there because it wasn't, it wasn't what we think of as art in that way for one another. And it, it kind of reminds me of um, when my daughter was young and studying Balinese dance when we lived there. At the end of um, our months living there in her practice, she put on a dance performance, a kind of recital near the palace in Ubud um, on this, uh, this, with this Balinese group. And um, I've told this story many times, but anyway, she was ready to do her dance performance and I was the kind of excited father with my video camera there going to capture this thing. And it was late afternoon and it started to get dark, and I was getting nervous that I wouldn't get good pictures of the kid, right? You know, how parents are. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're dressing her up, and they put on a silk sarong, and then they put on this, you know, beautiful gold belt to hold it up, and then they take, take silk and they wrap it around her. The, there's a, a way in which they make a kind of dancer's outfit 
with, I don't know, 15 yards of silk that gets wrapped around you. And then they had to do her hair and put, put uh, flowers in it and then gold and then jewels. And then the, the dance teacher's wife took off her own golden necklace and put it around my daughter. And then they had to do makeup, mascara. And all. You know, my daughter was in heaven, ecstasy. Every, like the little girl had died and gone to heaven. And I'm sitting there, come on, hurry up, it's getting dark, I want to take pictures. And then finally, you know, it dawned on me, duh. Um, first of all, Dad, relax, okay? It's all right. You can just meditate and not get so... Um, but uh, when, in talking with the teacher as well, um, in Bali, children are not considered children when they're um, performing or making art. They're artists. And so she was given the same care and attention and um, respect as an artist, as the princess of Ubud, if she were to do some performance in the palace, um, because she was performing not for her parents, I thought she was, but turned out not to be, she was offering her dance to the gods. And whether you're three years old or six or, you know, 60 or whatever, um, the way and the spirit of your activity in Bali is not just for yourself, but it's really for something for the whole, for something that's greater, for that which is divine. Um, so it was beautiful to be um, immersed in that culture. And in many ways, it's one of the strongest cultures that I've encountered in traveling in lots of, part of the parts of the world. Every day we would go out for walks across the rice paddies and fields and temples and so forth. And at every crossroad, there would be shrines and there would be prayers and offerings that were made that day for anybody who, you know, was crossing that and for the spirits that lived there. Um, and in Bali's modernizing like everywhere else. The roads are more crowded with motorcycles and cars and, you know, uh, Bali's have their cell phones and, you know, except they have different cell phone rings than we do, right? They have little gamelan cell phone rings of <laughs> Bali's. Um, but anyway, one time we were traveling, I was going with this driver who had a brand new car. And when we'd get to these intersections, before we'd go through the intersection, he would honk his horn, which is, you know, there's a little bit of, that was reminiscent of traveling around Indian places where you need, you know, you need an engine and a horn and maybe brakes in some cases or whatever, but the horn is really critical. Um, and so I said to him, you know, are you honking your horn in order to, uh, you know, you've got this fancy new car in order to make sure that it's safe when you go through the intersection? And he said, oh, no, no, no. I'm tapping the horn to let the gods know that I've arrived at the intersection <laughs> so that they will bless me as I pass through. So I thought, they're going to be all right, you know. This is even as they, as they modernize. And... Um, they had interesting conversations with them about what it means to modernize and still keep a sense of the spiritual. Um, I visited some of my old teachers, and, you know, yes, there are people who are selling their rice fields to buy cars and motorcycles, but not very many. Mostly, there's still a real reverence for the way that people have lived there. And so I come back after a couple of months of living in a way that I walked much of the time instead of getting in a car. Oh, it feels so good. You actually, you know, can talk to people as you could on the street and 
Um, and now here we are, back on, I'm back on 101 in my car and the traffic with all the rest of you, right? Hi, you know, in our cars and the answering machine and the piles of mail and, you know. And in Bali, I, I wasn't teaching. In fact, the whole idea of being a teacher sort of just dropped away. I was just, you know, writing and being with my friends and so forth. And then I got back and I said, oh, okay, it's Monday night. You have to kind of step into that role again. And it's kind of, it's fine. It's a lovely role. It so clearly has nothing to do with me, you know. It does. It's just we all have our jobs to do, right? Okay. Um, and so here I am, and i kind of looking at it anew. Um, and also wondering, do I have anything of value to say? A few more minutes, and you'll we'll, we'll see, right? But it did feel it does feel good to step out of any kind of role and kind of, to be in another culture and have the the sense of what's automatic and habitual and ordinary broken a bit and drop away. Um, to have the tastes be different than different kinds of fruit and flowers and different way that people move and interact, all of that somehow brings a freshness. Um, and then coming back. Uh, and so I, I sit up here and was kind of reflecting as I was coming over and making some notes for myself. What is a value? What is important? You know, coming back and visiting the retreat here at Spirit Rock and feeling a, a great respect for the practice that people have been doing. Um, When I start to get quiet and meditative, it seems actually very simple. Um, To come to a place like Spirit Rock, to a meditation center, um, what is offered is a support or a reminder for keeping our heart open, to keep an open heart and an open mind. That simple. From the Tao Te Ching. The mark of a gracious woman or man is freedom from her own ideas, tolerant like the sky, all pervading like sunlight, firm like a mountain, supple like a tree in the wind. She has no destination in view and makes use of anything life happens to bring her way. Nothing is impossible for her. Because she has let go, she can greet each day, she can care for the people's welfare as a mother cares for her child. Nothing is impossible for her because she has let go. And because she has, she can greet each day afresh. And what meditation does for me and for us, especially in this culture that's complicated and speedy and so forth, is it's an invitation to drop to a stillness and an openness that allows for a a gracious response to the world. It's a way to stop, to catch our breath, to sit, to see anew, to begin to trust To see anew, you know, George Bernard Shaw said that his tailor was the wisest man that he knew because every time I see him, he takes my measurements again. (laughs) 
And we tend to see each other with so much habit. Um, And here I come and I look around and it makes me very happy to look around because I see faces of people that I've known for years and years and love a lot. Um, And I see dedication and interest and care. And um, it's just a beautiful thing to see see it fresh, to see ourselves again in a new way. And it's so good to sit together. Don't even have to say much more than that. To sit and learn to trust ourselves, to trust that we can open to the 10,000 joys and sorrows of the world as the Buddha sat and taught. Kind of a, a deep sense of trust. One lama that I spoke to said, for years I thought spiritual life was about some special state of enlightenment or perfection. It's really not. It's about releasing your attachments. Life doesn't depend only on what you do. The big illusions we strive for, whether in the world or in our spiritual life, generally turn out to be false. When you learn to let go, you find a tremendous faith in the ground of all things, that which is true before and after all our plans. Everything arises and passes. This is the true perfection. I found I could trust this. So how can we learn to trust? How can we find freedom, nirvana, awakening in a world described by Zen Master Suzuki Roshi in these three words, not always so. In the world, it's always changing. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. This is the way the world is, said the Buddha. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. The winds of the world. And it's mysterious how to live in this world. Here I was flying back across the globe. You know, flying in an airplane, we take it for granted, and I fly a fair amount. Um, It's so strange to get in this metal cylinder. First of all, the fact that it gets up there in the air at all is kind of remarkable, you know. And then, it's so recent. In Florida, I was visiting my Aunt Ellen, um, who's 98 years old. My daughter and wife and I were there. And my, my wife's father's sister, Aunt Ellen, and she's an artist, 98. And so we were talking, and my daughter Caroline asked her, Aunt Ellen, when you were little, were there many cars? And she said there were hardly any. There were just horses, you know, and gas lamps. And uh, How about radios, Aunt Ellen? Oh, we didn't have, finally we got a crystal radio when I was little, and then as I grew up then we got one of those radios that sat on the counter and so forth. And I was hearing, you know, a hundred years of our history, um, from from Aunt Ellen. Um, and here we are jetting around the world, going from one continent all the way halfway around the whole globe in not that many hours. And as I was flying, you know, sometimes I do metta in the airplane for people there or people I'm flying over. Most of the time I watch the movies, but, you know, <laughs> how it is. But sometimes I do that. And there I was going over these different in the ocean in these different countries and looking down and there's people who are sick and those who are well and those who are poor and those who are rich and those who are sad and happy 
and those who are being born and those who are dying and those who are in between that process. And every day, um, 200,000 people die and 250,000 people are born at this, at this point, anyway, the way things are going. Um, and it's so mysterious. Here we are flying over this earth that we're a part of. We're part of this process. We come up out of the mud of the earth and the, our bodies see water and mud and all of that. And we have a certain dance for a time and then we go back and something else comes up in our place. Such a mystery. And leaving Bali, looking at this beautiful island, there was a kind of tension there because Bali is a Hindu culture um, of three million people is surrounded by the most populous Muslim country in the world, 220 million Indonesian Muslims. Um, and there had been a couple of bombings in the last few years, so people were kind of frightened about that. What would that mean? And most of the Indonesians that I've met, the Indonesian Muslims, are very gracious, but like here and everywhere, there's a group of fundamentalists that are um, very, very um, frightening in a way because they're, um, uh, some of them anyway, um, are like the fundamentalists in America or the fundamentalists in Israel or whatever it happens to be, um, so certain that they're right and want to force everybody else to see the things the way they do. And I began to look at the world I was going over and one lens I could put on was the kind of worry, you know, the bird flu, H5N1, you know, how many chickens there were in our yard in Bali and all these things, you know, and you can worry about this pandemic, which could happen. But on the other hand, I read the news when I come back, and there are these amazing new potentials for cures, genetic things that are happening, and we could, as we could have a great epidemic but we also could find the cure for malaria or cancer or some other great genetic thing could happen. And who knows? Maybe both. It's hard to tell. Or I worry about the spread of nuclear weapons. That's happening on one side. But on the other side, we might easily find in the next few years uh, cold fusion or hot fusion or some way to make incredible amounts of energy without destroying the environment. Or worry about greater totalitarianism that's growing in our country and other places. And on the other side, I look at a country like South Korea, which is the most wired country in the world. Um, And they've had a kind of political revolution led a lot by the students. Um, there, There was a kind of conservative and somewhat military-aligned president that was voted out by a lot of the young people. Um, And then when he was voted out and a new president put in, the legislature, which was still very conservative in South Korea in the last few years, they tried to impeach the new, more liberal president. Um, And all the students got on their, you know, um, phones and... uh, text messages and all the ways of connecting with one another and got a whole kind of electronic revolution um, and threw them out. Um, And the most popular news source in South Korea is this uh, internet uh, called, this internet site called Oh My News, um, which has 25,000 reporters. 
basically. Anybody who wants to write for it can. Mostly it's young people. Um, and then what's put on there is voted for by the readers. Whoever the readers want to read more of, whatever stories seem compelling, they vote for, and that's what's put on there. Um, and then that's who gets paid. And so there's this whole network of young people especially who are changing the dynamics of the, of the culture and of the whole society in this way. So I look and I say, well, some bad things are happening or could happen, and some very good things could happen, and I haven't a clue. <laughs> it's very hard to know, isn't it? You know, It's so mysterious. Here we are in these human bodies for a short time on this turning earth. I was reading a, a book that I like very much called Field Notes on Compassionate Life from Mark Ian Barish. And one of the stories of mystery that I was reading in here, he went to visit a woman um, named Amy Morgana, who's raised an um, um, African gray parrot named Nkisi in her Harlem apartment across from the old National Geographic Explorers Club since he was a fuzzy little chick. Now at age seven, he's as unalterably attached to her as a toddler. He loves her, and as the world's most verbose parrot, 1,200 words thus far... He can count the ways. I asked her how she trained him. She didn't, she insists. He learned to speak like any child. I talked to him a lot, just using language creatively, and he picked up on it. Like her friend Jane Goodall, who first approached her chimps with hand outstretched in a gesture of submission, Amy, in her experiments to explore avian language, decided to give Nkisi dominance in their social relationship, figuring it might facilitate learning. Whenever, whatever she did, it worked beyond her wildest dreams. He was actually ahead of human children for the first few years, she says, with parental pride. He'd be using ten-word sentences versus their two words. Now we have actual conversations. Is that so, I think to myself. The fact that African greys can talk sensibly rather than merely mimic was demonstrated by MIT professor Irene Pepperberg, who trained a bird named Alex to identify different objects and classify them by color and shape and use. Alex proved parrots know what they're saying, but it's pretty dry stuff, linguistic tests by behaviorists. I don't give Nkisi any behaviorist reward, so he won't perform on cue. Her role was more like playing Annie um, Sullivan to Helen Keller. I'd show him water and say water, and after a while he was thirsty and he'd say water. <laughs> so I'd give him a drink. Basically, we just live here together. I'm homeschooling a parrot, she says with some <laughs> irony. I live in a magical world with a talking animal. Now, Nkisi doesn't just talk, Amy insists. He's revealed a mind of his own, a feeling life. I go, hmm, okay. I want to fly over there now, Nkisi suddenly announces. African parrots are big birds. When he flaps over the downdraft, fa fans my pace, face. He perches on the arm of the couch. His foot-long bright tail feathers hanging off the edge peer sidelong into my eyes. His normal speaking voice is an exact recording of hers. But he says, hello to me, in a hearty male voice, <laughs> like a conventioneer. That's his guy voice, Amy informs me, the one he uses for male visitors. He thinks it sounds tough. When she tells me that I've written books, he says distinctly, Jane wrote a book. He's friends with Jane Goodall, she explains, and Kesey hoots like a chimp. 
Jane taught him the chimpanzee greeting. She tells him, Kisi, I've written books about medicine and healing. You had to go to the hospital, he says to her. I don't see any secret hand signals. This is getting really weird. <laughs> Amy explains and Kisi's been very concerned about her health because she's been struggling with breast cancer. He's, I worried about the chemo. And one night he said to me, hey, baby, you tired? Want me to put the light out? I hope you get well. <laughs> I mean, I could go on with this, you know. Amy says the strong results of their, their language are due to the fact, not to mince words, that they love each other. And I hear him call out to her, I love you, weirdo. <laughs> Is Nkisi compassionate? He talks the talk, and I imagine he'd walk the walk if he had proper feet. Nkisi means the spirit of the thing, the soul, the mystery. Coco the gorilla signs hug by clasping herself around the shoulders with a rocking motion. Washo the chimp gestures, person please hug in American Sign Language. Kanzi the bonobo pokes at his hug lexagram button and grins. And Kisi just says, can I have a kiss? Hug, hurry up, I can't reach you. (laughs) I think we need fixes of mystery daily, basically, because we get so used to this world that is actually quite bizarre. And stepping out of our culture or flying as we do around the globe or whatever else it is that wakes you up, walking up in the mountains or being by the ocean. What matters when we return to our awakening, our sensibility, is whether then we can treat each other with respect for this mystery. Here's another being like you are. You don't even know what you are, but here's another one with respect, with dignity, whether we can treat ourselves that way and one another. What is asked of us as humans? I mean, here I'd like to speak to the inner adult, if I may, for a moment. The Dhammapada from the Buddha says, all that we are arises with our thoughts. Speak or act with an impure mind or heart, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. All that we are arises with our thoughts. Speak or act with a pure heart and mind, and happiness will follow you as closely as your shadow, unshakable. What is asked of us as human beings? Sometimes we get lost in fear, confusion, of small-mindedness that in the Buddhist language is called samsara, the cycles of habit and reactivity. And each time something unpleasant or painful comes, we get afraid or frightened and push it away. And each time something that's pleasant comes out of habit, we grasp, we want more, we cling to it. And so we're kind of like the dog chasing its tail. We go in these circles, more pleasure, less pain, more pleasure, less pain. Does it work? Does anybody not have pain? Raise your hand. You know, not have loss, have only gain and no loss. How about somebody who has only praise and no blame? All you have to do is go home, right? It takes care of that. So one way to live is to be lost in this reactivity, this habit, the small sense of self, small-mindedness, and react to things all the time, feel separate and defensive in this samsaric way. But the other possibility, and 
meditation is really the invitation to this wisdom, is quieting the mind and opening the heart, is seeing the mystery of the world with a kind of mindfulness, and then there naturally comes a a tenderness, a compassion. We sit together, and we have this evening, and you start to get quieter and calmer, and even if the mind is racing inside, you know it. The part that's mindful that says, wow, there's a lot of thoughts or plans or memories or anxiety or anger or fear or excitement or love or whatever it is, the moment that you notice it, you feel your body sitting here, your breath, and you notice, oh, this is all going on inside, these feelings and thoughts. It's as if there's a moment of, oh, yeah, I remember. Here we are, just in this moment, not lost in it, becoming the space of awareness itself. And with this space of awareness, there's a natural clarity. Oh, it's like this. This is the way things are. This is fear, and this is joy, happiness, and this is longing, and this is love and excitement, and this is planning mind. We're not lost in it. We know it as it is. And who we are, instead of being the small self that's worried, rests in the present, here and now, free, open. The mind is quiet. There's a clarity. And then we can respond as needed, respond with wisdom. Contemplation, another word for meditation. If you consider for a moment... What is it in your life that asks for some quiet contemplation? It might be some creative project you're involved with. It might be conflict with another person. It might be plans you have. Just to stop. Quiet the mind, see things with clarity. Oh, it's like this, instead of being reactive. And in that spaciousness, allow an innate wisdom to come. There's a story from the uh, Zen tradition of a bodhisattva or Buddha named Manjusri. And it seems that there was a a monk who lived in the Zen monastery who practiced for years and years trying to get enlightened. And nothing came of it. He was really frustrated. And so one day he said, all right, enough of this. I'm just going to go and sit in the little hut on the top of the mountain and practice and either get enlightened or die in the attempt. One of those kind of Zen stories. You know how they are. So he gathers his little belongings, puts them on a stick, and starts walking up the mountain, um, leaving the monastery behind. And as he does, he meets this Buddha Bodhisattva Manjusri coming down the path. And this old man, Manjusri is in the form of an old man, um, looks kind of wise. So the old man says, yo, monk, where are you going? And the monk says, Going up to the mountains, I'm going to get enlightened or die. And the old man nods. He says, mm, very good. And the young monk looks at him and says, tell me, old man, do you know anything of this enlightenment? And the old man, who's carrying a big bundle, 
lets go of the bundle and drops to the ground. And in that moment, the monk is enlightened. It's that easy. Just let go. Don't carry stuff. Be here. Put it. Put your bags down. Right? You're on the train. You can put your bags down. <sighs> He's so happy, joyful, free. That's all. Just let go. <laughs> then he looks at the old man and he says, so now what do I do? <laughs> and the old man reaches down and picks up the bundle <laughs> and walks off toward the marketplace. That's the story. So you get quiet. You meditate, you let the heart soften and open, the mind calm down a little bit, some space of clarity, and then you respond. And sometimes the response is, drop the bundle, let go. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you really learn how to let go, you'll really be free. And so sometimes the response that's called for is to let go. And you know what that is that needs to be let go of. I mean, the heart knows if we take just quiet ourselves and listen what it's time to let go of. A poem from E.E. Cummings. Let it go. The smashed work broken open, vow or oath cracked lengthwise. Let it go. It was sworn to go. Let them go, the truthful liars, and the false fair friends, and the boaths and neithers, you must let them go. They were born to go. Let all go. The big, small, middling, tall, bigger, really the biggest in all things. Let all go, dear. So comes love. So sometimes you get quiet, and the heart says, let this go. And let go doesn't mean aversion, like you're trying to get rid of it, I'm afraid of it, I don't want to feel it. Sometimes letting go means just letting it be, not worrying about it. Let it be as it is until it loses its power over you, whatever it is. But then sometimes you sit, meditate, make a space of awareness that you can rest in, the mind begins to quiet a little, body settle. And instead of letting go in that way, what the heart says is to stay. And people think meditation is passive, but instead there can come the sense of dedication and patience and integrity and a kind of inner care or strength or compassion where you say, I must stay with this. This is what is called for. This is the wise response, to stand up for what's important or to not back down to... to Offer yourself. You know, in the past number of weeks, there's been um, turmoil in Thailand. And having just been in Asia, I was reading about it regularly, even though I didn't stop in Thailand this this time. Um, And huge student demonstrations trying to throw out the current prime minister who the students claim is corrupt and so forth. And it reminds me of the time back in the 1970s when the demonstrations turned quite violent. At that time, it wasn't an elected prime minister, but it was um, an army general who'd taken over the government for a while and was also corrupt. And finally, the students came out as students do. It's part of their job, right, and their role, and began to demonstrate and call for a change in government. And at that time, the 
the general called the army out. Um, and there was these confrontations in the main boulevard in Rajadamna Road in Bangkok. Um, and lots of students were killed, and it got really bloody, and it went on for days and days. And finally, there was this kind of standoff, and the country was quite paralyzed. Finally, one of the abbots of a forest monastery just outside of Bangkok, one morning after the um, monks and nuns had done their morning meditation and chanting, said, we're going to take our alms round, take our bowls, and go into Bangkok. And they all walked into Bangkok in their robes with their bowls and followed their abbot, a hundred of them. And they walked right down the middle of Rajadurn Avenue, Avenue and in, in the line between the students and the military and stood there all day long. And the monks are still so revered in Thailand that nobody would shoot. Everything stopped. And it was actually the beginning of the release of that logjam of conflict between the two sides. So sometimes it's time to let go. And sometimes as you quiet the mind and open the heart, what comes is, now I need to stay steadfast. Now there's dedication. Now there's care that's required. Um, now there's something that needs a response. I like this story that I read coming back. It's part of a novel by Mary Gatskill. And she writes about this character, this woman, Allison, um, who was a social work intern in, in Watts while she was in college in this story. And she'd, this woman... Allison had seen a stray cat known in the neighborhood as Batty and got the idea to feed it. It was an old cat. She worried, though, what the people she worked with around the community center would think. At first, I thought they were angry at me, the men. They were busy playing pool, and as I started to feed the cat, they glared and they said, he don't know what to do with that. He ain't never had anything that good in his life. And I said, well, I'll just try and I opened the can, and they stopped playing pool, and they all watched when I I put it down. And the way that cat buried his head in that can, she'd thrust her head down, fingers splayed, her voice rolling and softly gobbling. She looked up at us, and if cats could cry, tears would have been streaming down her face. (laughs) Nobody said a word. And then one of the men crouched down and held the can so the cat could get to it better. And every day after that, I brought in a can of food, and every day the men would stop their pool playing and gather to watch Batty eat it. It was probably one of the few times they got to see a righteous need completely satisfied. (laughs) So meditation isn't passive, and it doesn't mean inaction what it does actually is prepare us to respond to the world from the heart and from what the, the, the spirit of our, our life force, of what is really needed. Alan Watts puts it this way. He says, The art of living is neither careless drifting nor fearful clinging to the past. It consists in being completely open sensitive to each moment, regarding it utterly new and unique in having the mind and heart open and receptive and responsive to what is needed. The art of living. 
So what's needed for us, for others, to let go, to stand firm? There's no formula. Manjusri drops the bundle and then he picks it back up again. We sit in meditation, quiet the mind, come into the heart of loving kindness and compassion, connect ourselves with this mystery of life, and then we get to start over again, each moment, start over and over again with a gracious heart. It's not easy, is it? <laughs> Let me see, where's this story? It's not so easy. Oh, yeah. I once witnessed an exchange between a Tibetan Lama, I think it was Chogyam Trumpa, and a questioner. Rinpoche inquired the pleasant middle-aged man in a checkered sports shirt, You've been teaching us compassion. Well, I adore my son, and I want him to be happy. And he's a linebacker for his high school football team, and I find myself rooting for him to just cream the opposing quarterback. Anything wrong with that, Rinpoche? Of course not, the Lama replied. You love your son, and you want his happiness, and he's happy when he beats the other team. This is only natural. There was an audible sigh of relief in the room. The spiritual path may be challenging, but it's not unreasonable. (laughs) The man smiled. Thank you, Rinpoche, he said, making a brisk little folding gesture of his hands. Then the Lama laughed sharply. I was only joking. Actually, this is not the wise attitude at all. In fact, he said, glancing at the man mischievously, a good practice for you would be to root for the other team. See them winning. See them happy. See their parents overjoyed. This is more the bodhisattva way. Why don't you try that for a while? (laughs) Ah, Quiet the mind. Become present, see what's so, and respond with a gracious heart. Because this is what the world needs. It needs human beings who are in touch with the wisdom of their heart. The Muslims and the Hindus in Indonesia and the Christians and the Jews and the Taoists and the Buddhists and all the kind of suffering from people taking positions in one form or another and the tensions. And then we think, well... I want my team to win, whether it's my political team, right, or my religious team, or whatever it is. There's a lack of graciousness and forgiveness in it that this Lama story points out, and a lack of the sense of mystery that we really don't know. It's not our team. It's us, all the teams. We're all really part of this dance. And meditation takes time to trust the wisdom of the heart, to quiet ourselves, to listen, to begin to sense that courage and innate justice, innate goodness that's in you, innate forgiveness, because you don't want to suffer and you don't want others to suffer. As Mahatma Gandhi says, When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. Yes, there have been murderers and tyrants, and for a time they can seem invincible. 
but in the end they always fall. Think of it, always. And he goes on, I claim to be no more than an average person with less than average ability, and I have not the shadow of a doubt that any man or woman can achieve what I have if he or she would simply make the same effort and cultivate the same hope and faith. If even one person can become truly free, it's enough to undo the suffering of centuries. One person. So it's a really beautiful thing to come together as we do, to sit in stillness for a time in a culture and in a world that's a whirlwind that's really um, lost touch with itself in many ways. And to begin to trust more and more deeply the space of awareness, the quieting of the mind, and the listening to the innate wisdom of the heart. And it's an honor to sit together with you um, and to be part of the Spirit Rock and return to this community. Let's sit for a minute. 